Well, it's been dubbed the most famous ride in American history since Paul Revere warned that the British were coming. On June 12, 1994, I remember sitting in my grandmother's living room watching on TV along with 95, other, 95 million other viewers this high-speed car chase involving a white Ford Bronco. That Bronco was carrying none other than world-famous football player O.J. Simpson. Simpson was on the run after the police had obtained a warrant for his arrest following the murder of two people, one of which was his ex-wife. Six months later, Simpson stood trial, and for 133 days, Simpson's televised trial had people glued to their televisions. And as is the case with most criminal trials, several witnesses took the stand, 72 in total. There was a 911 dispatcher who received the call. There were relatives who demonstrated OJ's abusive behavior. There was OJ's friend, Ron who testified that Simpson had actually told him at one point that he had dreams of killing his wife. There was Alan Park, the limousine driver, and Cato Kalin, the friend, staying in the guest house. They all offered their testimony of what they had experienced that day. There was one neighbor who had heard a barking dog and Robert Risk, the first police officer at the scene. These witnesses were called because they all had a firsthand account. They had experienced something that the jury and the watching world needed to hear because witnesses offer evidence. Witnesses help establish the facts through their firsthand observations. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave his final instructions to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Those instructions, be my witnesses. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me remind you that Acts is actually the second part of a two-part volume written by Luke to a man named Theophilus, who is probably some kind of ranking official. In the first volume, The Gospel According to Luke, Luke details the ministry of Jesus. He begins with the virgin birth. He talks about Jesus' baptism, the anointing of the Spirit, Jesus' exorcisms and miracles, his teaching, his gathering of disciples, and finally, his death by crucifixion on a Roman cross and his empty tomb just a short while later. Not only that, but then Jesus appears alive to people in the flesh multiple times over the course of 40 days. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to leave earth. He's about to ascend into heaven, but he has one final message for his disciples. Let's look at it together. We'll be reading Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you're taking notes this morning, our main idea is this. Jesus calls his Spirit-empowered disciples to be witnesses of his resurrection to the ends of the earth. Let me say that again. Jesus calls his Spirit-empowered disciples to be witnesses to his resurrection to the ends of the earth. In what amounts to Jesus' last will and testament, this exhortation is Jesus' final word of instruction before he ascends to his throne. Well, in our remaining time, I'd like to unpack this main idea by asking four key questions. Four questions. The first question is this. Who? Who is called to be a witness? The answer all disciples of Jesus. A disciple is a learner and a follower of Jesus. That is to say, a disciple heeds the instruction of Jesus and also seeks to emulate his way of life. In our text this morning, Acts chapter 1, Jesus is speaking to the 12, minus Judas, and a larger group. In fact, based on the context, we read in verse 15 that there's about 120 people probably present. Well, a few days later, after Jesus' departure, this group of disciples then receives the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And then they immediately be begin proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of these people in their native languages. Peter actually stood up and preached in their midst. In chapter 2, verse 32, Peter declared, this Jesus God raised up and of that, we all are witnesses. We are witnesses of this. And 2,000 people became disciples that day. People who had traveled from all over the Roman world for Pentecost would then go back to their native homelands taking the gospel with them. And as we read the rest of Acts... We see that not only do the apostles continue to be witnesses of the resurrection, but so do all of these new converts. We see in Acts chapter 8, after Stephen's martyrdom, because of the intense persecution that was going on in Jerusalem, many of the people fled the region, but the apostles stayed. The apostles did not flee. Yet we read in verse 4 of chapter 8, now those who were scattered... This is not the apostles. These are other disciples. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see that? 
Those who had become disciples from the apostles' preaching were now being witnesses wherever they went. In other words, disciples make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Being a witness is simply par for the course for all disciples of Jesus. As Charles Spurgeon once said, soul winning should be the main pursuit of every true believer. It's not an add-on. It's not something that only pastors and missionaries do. It is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, throughout church history, many have taken seriously the responsibility of being a witness for Christ. But I'd like to draw our attention to one such witness today, someone who lived over a century ago. His name was John Payton. Now, I'll be sharing more of Payton's story throughout the remainder of this message, but just for now, I'd like to introduce you to him. In 1839, a group of missionaries from the London Missionary Society landed on the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific with the goal of sharing the resurrection hope that is found in Jesus. They were eaten by cannibals within minutes. Three years later, more missionaries landed on the islands, only to be driven off a few months later. However, God was not through with those islands. Back in Glasgow, Scotland, John Payton had a successful evangelistic and teaching ministry for the lower economic class. Hundreds of unchurched people attended his class every week with much fruit. Yet Peyton had this strong sense, this, he felt this strong call to take the gospel to the cannibals of the New Hebrides. After all, they were, Im- they were image bearers too. They needed Jesus just like everyone else. Yet Peyton's desire was met with much strong resistance, even within his own church community. One criticism came from a respected elder named Mr. Dixon. Dixon remarked, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which Peyton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see that? Peyton's overwhelming desire to see the lost people of the New Hebrides come to Christ overcame all natural fears. Now, I realize that most, if not all of you, will never face the threat of cannibals. That said, you still face fears that cripple you as a witness. I don't need to tell you what those fears are. You already know them. 
Yet I want us to draw inspiration from this man who disregarded his own life because he cared so much about lost people. Friend, you love lost people like that. So much so that it overrides any kind of fear you might have about witnessing. Are you burdened for the people in your sphere of influence who are alienated from God, who will face eternal judgment unless they turn to Jesus? Do you pray for them regularly? Do you strategize about how you might be able to get the gospel to them? Friend, the calling is the same for all disciples. Be a witness. This brings us to our second question. How? How are disciples able to witness? The answer? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Notice Jesus doesn't say, when you conjure up enough courage, then you will be my witnesses. Or when you have all of the tough answers figured out, then you'll be my witnesses. No, Jesus says you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If you know the story in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out on Jesus' disciples at Pentecost. And they became emboldened witnesses instantaneously, right away. Now, Pentecost occurred at a very specific time in salvation history. It marks this redemptive historical shift, a shift where now all of the people in the covenant community would, that, would now have the power of the Spirit living inside of them. You see, in the Old Covenant, only special leaders like prophets, priests, and kings had the Spirit within them. But that all changed under the New Covenant. As Jeremiah 31 prophesied, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, my covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, the promise of the new covenant radically different from the old covenant. In fact, Moses makes this clear in Numbers 11.29 when he wishfully states, Oh, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Friends, what Moses wished for has come to fruition in the new covenant. Following this initial outpouring of the spirit, disciples no longer wait in expectation for the spirit. Rather, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, we were all baptized by the spirit at our conversion. The spirit lives in every true believer, every disciple of Jesus. And why is this a good thing? Well, Jesus tells us in John 14, 
that he will send the Spirit to be another helper for us. We're told that the Spirit who lives in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Romans 8, 11 notes that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells inside of us. That's it. We have resurrection power dwelling inside of us. And this Spirit empowers us to be a witness. We haven't received a spirit of fear, no, but of power. Friend, you have almighty God dwelling inside of you. You are empowered to be a witness. In 1858, Peyton set sail for the unreached cannibal-filled islands with his wife and newborn son. But tragedy struck immediately. Within a few months, both his wife and his newborn son died of illness. He dug their graves with his own hands. Peyton grieved their deaths, obviously, for some time, experienced many deep valleys of sorrow, and life didn't get any easier either, for the people on the island were often trying to kill him. Here's one excerpt from his autobiography. He says, Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all of the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In his words, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring and seeing him who is invisible. So what sustained Peyton and gave him the courage to keep pressing on in the face of unspeakable danger. It was the presence and power of God. Peyton took great comfort in the fact that the Lord promised to be with him even until the end of the world. What greater comfort can we receive than that? The Lord promises to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. And church, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of you. And he's there to empower you, to give you boldness to go on mission for him. So brother and sister, pray diligently that the Spirit would work powerfully through you. Acts 4.31 notes, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting with was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Notice the sequence there. The disciples prayed, God empowered them through the Spirit, and then they spoke boldly. This brings us to our third question. Where? 
Where are disciples to witness? The answer? To the ends of the earth. In verse 6, the disciples appear to be fixated on the local kingdom of Israel. But Jesus wants them to have a, a global perspective of his kingdom. It's not just the nation of Israel. God's kingdom will stretch to the ends of the earth in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Many have pointed out that this verse, chapter 1, verse 8, serves as a sort of outline for the entire book of Acts. The book begins with the gospel going forth in Jerusalem, and then it moves outward to Judea and Samaria, and it finishes with Paul's journeys to the greater Roman world, to the ends of the earth. Of course, 2,000 years have come and gone now, and we now realize that Rome wasn't really the ends of the earth. Actually, from their perspective, upstate South Carolina is more like the ends of the earth. And here we are, gathered under the banner of Jesus Christ, worshiping him as king. What Jesus promised his disciples in Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled right now in our midst. Now, that's not to say that there aren't more places and people groups that, that need to be reached. There certainly are. And friends, we must engage in this process, whether it's through prayer or financial support or even going ourselves. Missiologists tell us that there are still thousands of unreached people groups, groups who don't have access to the gospel in their native language. There is still much work to be done. But I want us to stop for just a moment and reflect on the fact that Jesus really does have witnesses all over the earth. I saw an interesting graphic the other day that showed the breakdown of every major world religion and where all the people who adhered to those religions lived. What was fascinating was that Christianity is the only major world religion that was evenly spread out across the entire globe. For example, well over 95% of all adherents to Hinduism and Buddhism live in Southeast Asia. Over 90% of all Muslims live in the Middle East. Christianity, on the other hand, is evenly distributed across the major continents on the globe. 20% of all Christians live in North America, 25% in Central and South America, 25% in Africa, and 20% live in Asia. Witnesses to the ends of the earth. The gospel is truly global, friends. But this raises a question How did this happen? How did Christianity get everywhere? Was it because Christians formed good strategy? Savvy networking, persuasive speakers? The answer, of course, is no. That's not why. Church, I'll tell you why it happened. It happened because God willed for it to happen. Before God created the universe, before he placed the sun, moon, and stars in the sky, before he formed the mountains and the, the oceans and the rivers, 
He set his affection on people from the uttermost parts of the earth. And he determined to purchase and redeem them through the blood of his lamb. And he has now sent his spirit to draw in those redeemed into a saving relationship with him. We get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 5, where John relays this prophetic vision that he has of the throne room of God. Listen to what John reports, beginning in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding, an, each holding a harp, a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall all reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus came to purchase and redeem people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And one day they will all in one voice along with the angels worship around the throne the lamb who was slain. I hope you see the implications here. The implication is that ultimately evangelism and missions will be successful. People from every tribe and people and nation will worship Jesus around his throne. Revelation 5 tells us as much. In John eleven fifty two, 52, it tells us that Jesus died on the cross to, quote, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, God is going to gather in his redeemed from abroad. He will gather them in full stop. And while he could do this unilaterally, he's chosen to enlist us by his kindness to participate, to play a role in his kingdom expansion. In other words, in God's providential plan, he has determined that gospel growth will take place, but only after we plant and water. Only after we evangelize, we disciple, we share, we pray. Thus, it will not do to think that because God has sovereignly ordained to usher in a certain group of people that we're no longer responsible to be witnesses. No, God will not allow that. Yes, Jesus says, I will build my church. But then Romans 10, 14 asks, how then will they call on him in whom they've never believed? And how will they believe in whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? Paul knew very well that God had a sovereign plan to save his people, but that never served as a detriment for his evangelistic zeal. In fact, the ex exact opposite proved true. You say, what do you mean? 
In Acts chapter 18, Paul was discouraged. He's in Corinth. He hadn't had much success, hadn't seen much fruit, not many converts. But one night, God spoke to him in a vision. And God said to him in verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. There are people here, Paul, who are mine. You just need to get the message to them. And verse 10 reports, the very next verse, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. You hear that? God encouraged Paul by telling him that several of his elect were in the city. They just hadn't believed yet. You see, God was guaranteeing Paul's success if he would just do the work and labor as a witness. And so he remained as a witness for a year and a half. Consider also Acts 13, 48. It states, and when, the disciple, or, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice the sequence there. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God's mission will not fail. After John Payton had left the New Hebrides after decades of faithful ministry, he continued doing his part by mobilizing the church for the nations. When some people tried to argue that the aborigines of Australia were savages, unable to be reached, Peyton responded with this statement. Recall what the gospel has done for the near kindred of these same aborigines. On our own anedium, 3,500 cannibals have been led to renounce their heathenism. In Fiji, 79,000 cannibals have been brought under the influence of the gospel and 13,000 members of the churches are professing to live and work for Jesus. In Samoa, 34,000 cannibals have professed Christianity. On our New Hebrides, more than 12,000 cannibals have been brought to sit at the feet of Christ. God's mission to reach the ends of the earth will not fail. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So brother and sister, have confidence that God's spirit is at work and God will continue to gather in his children. Those who are appointed to eternal life will believe, but we must plant and water but God will give the growth. Evangelism and missions cannot ultimately fail. And this brings us to our fourth and final question. What are we witnesses of? What are we witnesses of? The answer, the resurrection. Notice Luke's words in verse 3. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus spoke with them. He ate with them. He appeared to them, different groups at different times and in different places. He even let them touch him, all to indicate that he really had defeated death. And let me remind you once again what Peter preached at Pentecost in chapter 2, verse 32. He declared, this Jesus God raised up. This is the message they're preaching at Pentecost. God raised Jesus, and of that we all are witnesses. That's what we're witnesses to. Thousands of people died by crucifixion in the ancient world, but only one of them is said to come back from the grave. Jesus conquered death. Church, the resurrection is a story of hope. It's a story of hope because death catches up to us all. There's the fear of death, the fear of unknown. There's the fear of judgment. But the resurrection declares that death will not have the final word. This is why Paul says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He's mocking death because he knows that through Jesus, God has given victory over the grave. Luke says that Jesus offered lots of proofs for his resurrection. We weren't there. It would been nice to be there, right? We weren't there, though. We didn't get to see him or touch him. We simply have to rely on the testimony of the disciples, which has been recorded in Scripture. And while there are many, many good reasons to trust what they claim to have experienced, I'd like to give us one of those good reasons briefly. It's this. Based on the historical record, the disciples were often persecuted, sometimes executed, all for their belief in a risen Jesus, and they never once recanted. Let me just give you one brief example, though I could list many. James, the brother of Jesus. We have no reason to believe that during Jesus' earthly ministry that James was a follower of Jesus. In fact, the Gospels tell us the exact opposite. In Mark 3.21, it notes that Jesus' brothers believed that he was, quote, out of his mind. They thought Jesus was nuts. He was crazy. John 7, verse 5, specifically says, not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. And we can imagine why. I mean, think about the resentment that James must have felt every time mom and dad said, now, James, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? But then comes Acts 15. This is 20 years after Jesus' death. And what do we discover? James, no longer a skeptic, but the leader of the Jerusalem church. Paul even calls him a pillar of the church in Galatians chapter 2. But there's more. Not only did James become a pillar of the church, we're told by multiple early historians 
that James suffered martyrdom for his faith. Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, not a Christian, he remarks that a Jewish authority, quote, brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when they had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, as blasphemers, he delivered them to be stoned. Second century church historian Hegesippus notes that the Jewish leaders actually placed James on the pinnacle of the temple so that he could publicly recant in front of everyone. And when he would not recant, we're told that they, quote, threw down the just man and said to each other, let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him for he was not killed by the fall. And one of them, who was a fuller, took the club with which he beat out clothes, and he struck the just man on the head, and thus he suffered martyrdom. Now, what could possibly explain this radical transformation from skeptic to church leader to martyr? Something radical had to have happened in James's life. I submit to you the only explanation is that James witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Paul tells us as much in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Now, I could share stories from the other apostles, but why is this compelling evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it's because... Liars make bad martyrs. Liars make bad martyrs. Or to put it another way, if the disciples really made up the story, there's no way they all would have willingly suffered excruciating persecution for it. Eventually, at least one of them would fess up. When crucifixion's about to happen, surely one of them would say it was a hoax. Yet none of them ever did. Now, some argue this doesn't mean much because Muslim martyrs die for their faith all the time. But let me explain to you why this is different. A Muslim martyr will die on the basis of faith alone. They really believe in the cause for which they are dying. But it's on the basis of faith. In other words, they, they don't know for sure the disciples, on the other hand, were in a position to know for sure. After all, they're the ones who started the initial message that Jesus had risen from the dead, and yet they still willingly suffered. So people will willingly die for something they believe is true, but nobody would die for something that they knew was false. And the disciples would have known if it was false. Chuck Colson, a man many of you might be familiar with, he was caught up in the Watergate scandal of the Nixon administration. He later became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And here's what he had to say. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead 
Then they proclaim that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Paul tells us later in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. If you know anything about the ancient agrarian world, you know that the first fruits of the harvest always told the farmer how the rest of the harvest would pan out. So if the first fruits were subpar, the rest of the harvest would probably be subpar. It wasn't a good sign. If the first fruits were great, that's a good sign. The rest of the harvest will probably be great. So by stating that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, he's telling us that Jesus' resurrection indicates what our resurrection will look like. Jesus didn't stay dead. We won't stay dead. Jesus rose victoriously with an incorruptible body. We, the disciples of Jesus, will rise victoriously with an incorruptible body and live with Jesus forever in his kingdom. That is the message of hope that this broken and depressed world so desperately needs to hear. They need this message of hope. John Payton had the privilege of bearing much gospel fruit in the New Hebrides. One such convert was a former cannibal chief named Kawia. As Kawia was about to die, he had some final words for Payton, which Payton records in his autobiography. Kawia says, Farewell, Missy. That's what he called Peyton. I am very near death now. We will meet again in Jesus and with Jesus. Peyton continues, Abraham sustained him. Abraham was his friend. Abraham sustained him, tottering to the place of graves. There he laid down and slept in Jesus. And there the faithful Abraham buried him beside his wife and children. Thus died a man who had been a cannibal chief. But by the grace of God and the love of Jesus changed, transfigured into a character of light and beauty. What think ye of this, ye skeptics, as to the reality of conversion? I knew that day and I know now that there is one soul at least from Tana to sing the glories of Jesus and heaven and oh the rapture when I meet him there. Nothing gives as much hope as a good resurrection. A person as hopeless and lost as a cannibal chief could die in peace because he knew that his redeemer lived. Church, we are witnesses to this same resurrection. We have the message of hope. Back to our main idea. Jesus calls 
his spirit-empowered disciples to be witnesses of his resurrection to the ends of the earth. We saw first that all disciples of Jesus are called to be witnesses. Disciples are disciple makers. There are no exceptions to that. Second, we saw that disciples are witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God doesn't leave us all alone on an island, powerless and unable to accomplish this task that He has given to us. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us power, the Spirit of power, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us and emboldens us to be witnesses. Third, we saw that we are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Certainly from the early disciples' perspective, upstate South Carolina is the ends of the earth. But from our perspective, lots of people still haven't been reached. We know that ultimately evangelism and missions will succeed because God has willed that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will worship Him around the throne. And finally, we saw that we are to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the message of hope to this lost and dying world. There's much more I could have shared about John Payton's story. Decades of bold evangelism among the cannibals, lots of setbacks, but a lot of fruit as well. John Payton had a big vision for the glory of God and a massive heart for the lost. Oh, that God would raise up more John Paytons in this congregation. I'd like to leave you with one more statistic that I hope will encourage you. We're now 100 years removed from John Payton's mission to the New Hebrides, now known as Vanuatu. And today... Over 90% of those islands self-identify as Christian. God gave the growth, but John Payton planted and watered. Jesus will build his church, but we must plant and water. We must be his witnesses. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would stoke a fire within us for your glory and for the lost. Lord, we know that you have people that you will save from every tribe and people and language and nation. There are people in our neighborhoods. There are people at our workplaces there are people everywhere who just need to hear. They need the truth proclaimed. I pray that you would embolden this church to reach the lost. Fill them with your spirit. I pray that your spirit would empower them to be more bold than they've ever been before to not care even for their own life.
Lord, please raise up John Paytons in this congregation who love you and the lost more than themselves. Please, Lord, use the preaching of your word in your people this morning. In Christ's name, amen.